0: Did you know that you played a vital role in the digitization of the entire New York Times archive, the development of Google Maps, and the creation of Amazon's recommendation engine? That's right, you. Whether or not you know how to code, you've been a part of the expansion of just how prevalent artificial intelligence is in society today. When you make choices of what to watch on Netflix or YouTube, you're informing their recommendation engine. When you interact with Alexa or Siri, you help train their voice recognition software. And if you've ever had to confirm your identity online and prove that you are not a robot, then you're familiar with our key example for today, CAPTCHA. It started as a security check that digitized books, but now, every time you complete a CAPTCHA, you are determining the future of self-driving cars. So where does all of this leave you and your relationship with technology as a whole? This is consequential what's significant, what's coming, and what we can do about it. I'm Lauren Prastine, and I'll be your main tour guide along this journey. You'll also hear the voices of our many guests, as well as of your other host. Hi,
1: I'm Eugene Leventhal. I'll be joining throughout the season to take a step back with Lauren and overview what was just covered, to talk policy, and to read quotes. I'll pass it back to you now, Lauren.
0: Consequential is recorded at the Block Center for Technology and Society at Carnegie Mellon University. Established in 2018 through a generous gift from Keith Block and Suzanne Kelly, the Block Center is dedicated to investigating the economic, organizational, and public policy impacts of emerging technologies. This week, we're talking about data subjects and manure entrepreneurs, so stick with us. Our journey begins with CAPTCHA. So CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Tests to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. It's catchy, I know. The idea is you're trying to tell your computer that you're a person, and not, say, a bot that's trying to wreak havoc on the internet or impersonate you and steal your information. In his 2018 Netflix special Kid Gorgeous, comedian John Mulaney summed this up pretty well.
2: The world is run by computers. The world is run by robots. And sometimes they ask us if we're a robot just because we're trying to log on and look at our own stuff (laughs) multiple times a day. May I see my stuff, please? (sighs) I smell a robot. (laughs) Prove. Prove. (laughs) Prove you're not a robot. Look at these curvy letters than most letters, wouldn't you say? No robot could ever read these.
0: Originally, this was the conceit. You're trying to log into a website, and you're presented with a series of letters and numbers that look like they've been run through a washing machine. You squint at it, try to figure it out, type it in, and then you get to see your stuff. Or you mess up, briefly worry that you might actually be a robot, and then try again. But aside from keeping robots from touching your stuff, or say, instantaneously scalping all the tickets for a concert the second they drop and then reselling them at three times the cost, this didn't really accomplish anything. And this started to bother one of the early developers of CAPTCHA, Luis von Ahn. You probably know him as the co founder and CEO of the language learning platform Duolingo. But back in 2000, von Ahn was a PhD candidate at Carnegie Mellon University where he worked on developing some of the first CAPTCHAs with his advisor, Manuel Blum. And for a minute there, he was kind of regretting subjecting humanity to all these really obnoxious little tasks with no payoff. You proved you weren't a robot, and then you proved you weren't a robot, and then you proved you weren't a robot, and you had nothing to show for it. You know, imagine Sisyphus happy. So in 2007, Von Ahn and a team of computer scientists at Carnegie Mellon established reCAPTCHA, a CAPTCHA-like system that didn't just spit out a bunch of random letters and numbers. It borrowed text from otherwise hard-to-decipher books. So now, instead of just proving you weren't a robot, you would also help digitize books. That's pretty useful, right? Now you're not just seeing your stuff. You're making books like Pride and Prejudice and The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes freely available online. If you're interested in learning about ReCAPTCHA's work digitizing out-of-copyright books, The journalist Alex Hutchinson did some fantastic reporting on this for The Walrus in 2018. But let me give you the abbreviated version. In 2004, there was a huge international initiative to digitize every out-of-copyright book in the world to make it freely available to anyone. While the software was able to digitize the content of a new book with 90% accuracy, older books presented some problems because they weren't printed in a lot of the standard fonts we have now. So the software could only accurately transcribe about 60% of older texts. This was where reCAPTCHA came in. The reCAPTCHA would consist of two words, a known word that serves as the actual test to confirm that you were a human, and an unknown word that the software failed to characterize. If you go on CAPTCHA's website, the example CAPTCHA you'll get includes the words overlooks, inquiry. So let's say the software already knows that the word overlooks is indeed the word overlooks. There's your Turing test you prove you're not a robot. But the word inquiry, I don't know. It also looks like it could maybe be the word injury? So you throw that in the reCAPTCHA, and after a general consensus among four users as to what that word is, you've now transcribed the missing word in the book at 99.1% accuracy. The reCAPTCHA system helps to correct over 10 million words each day, allowing people to freely access books and articles online that they may never have had access to before. It's also responsible for digitizing the entire New York Times archive from 1851 to the present day. So bravo, you did that. But perhaps you've noticed that in the past few years, the CAPTCHAs ReCAPTCHA was showing you have looked a little different. Maybe you had to tell ReCAPTCHA which pictures had storefronts in them. Or maybe you had to pick all the pictures of dogs. Or maybe only one of the words was a word, and the other one was a picture of a house number. Or, oh... I don't know.
2: I've devised a question no robot could ever answer. Which of these pictures does not have a stop sign in it? What?
0: Yeah. You know what kind of computer needs to recognize a stop sign and differentiate it from, say, a yield sign? Like I said, congratulations. You are part of the future of self-driving cars. When it comes to making books freely available, it's really easy to see this as a work of altruism for the common good. And that's what Luis Fanon envisioned, a collective effort on the part of humanity to share knowledge and literature across the world wide web. And this isn't the only time we've done something like this. Wikipedia is a vast online database of knowledge that is developed almost entirely from open source labor. It's an amazing example of something we discussed in our first episode, collective intelligence. Most Wikipedia editors self-describe as volunteers. And by the way, I got that from a Wikipedia article titled Thoughts on Wikipedia Editing and Digital Labor. But while Wikipedia also relies on free labor to promote the spread of knowledge, that labor was completely voluntary. But in the case of reCAPTCHA, you can make the argument that you were an unconsenting, unpaid laborer in the process. Which is exactly what one Massachusetts woman did in 2015, when she filed a class-action lawsuit against Google Inc., which bought reCAPTCHA in 2009. The suit alleged that asking users to transcribe text for Google's commercial use and benefit, with no corresponding benefit to the user, was an act of fraud. Remember, only one of the two words in a reCAPTCHA actually keeps your stuff safe, so to speak. However, the case was dismissed by the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of California in early 2016 on the grounds that typing a single word without knowledge of how Google profits from such conduct does not outweigh the benefit. Essentially, the U.S. District Court argued that the plaintiff was being compensated, just not financially. She's allowed to use the free Google services that rely on those reCAPTCHAs, like Google Maps and Google Books, as well as the free Gmail account that she was signing up for when she completed the reCAPTCHA. In other words, the court found that the value of that free labor, however unwitting it is, does not outweigh the value of the benefits that someone receives for performing that labor. But is that still true today? Consider a recent report from Allied Market Research, which priced the global market for autonomous vehicles at $54.23 billion, with the expectation that this market will be worth more than $500 billion in 2026. This isn't just about recapture and self-driving cars. And it isn't just a financial issue or a labor issue. Your data is an incredibly valuable and ultimately essential resource, and it's driving more than just autonomous vehicles. Last episode, we discussed just how pervasive algorithms have become, from recommending the things we buy and watch to supporting treatment and hiring decisions. But it's important to remember that these algorithms didn't just appear out of nowhere. The algorithms that we use every day could not exist without the data that we passively offer up anytime we click on an advertisement or order a t-shirt, or binge that new show everyone's talking about. So it's easy to feel absolutely out of control here, like you don't have a seat at the table. But here's the thing, you have a seat. It's just been empty.
3: So Without the data, uh, the AI is not going to work. But the problem is, who really owns the data? So who benefits and who does not?
0: So stay with us. If these algorithms need our data to function, that means we're an absolutely necessary, and dare I say, consequential part of this process. And that might entitle us to some kind of authority over how our data is being used. But in order to define our rights when it comes to our data, we need to define what sort of authority we have. That's where Professor tae Kim comes in. He's a professor of business ethics, and specifically, he's interested in the ethics of data capitalism. In other words, he wants to know what our rights are when big data is monetized. And he's interested in articulating exactly where a data subject, or anyone whose data is being used to drive technology, sits at the table.
3: So who benefits and who does not? Typical uh, understanding of who data subjects are, they are consumers. So we offer data to Facebook, and uh, on exchange, Facebook offers us a service. So that is a discrete uh, uh, transaction. So once we sell the data to Facebook, then the data is theirs. But there's some uh, problem legally and philosophically to make a case that we sell our privacy to someone else. So, so, that, so that's the beginning of the, this question.
0: As we discussed with the example of reCAPTCHA, there's also a pervading argument that data subjects are workers, But Professor Kim is interested in a different framework for encouraging data subjects to take a proactive role in this decision-making, data subjects as investors.
3: Data subjects can be considered as a special kind of investors, like Mm -hmm. uh, shareholders.
0: In his research on data ownership, Professor Kim found that the relationship between data subjects and the corporations that use their data is structurally similar to the relationship between shareholders and the corporations that use their investments. Essentially, Both data subjects and traditional shareholders provide the essential resources necessary to power a given product. For shareholders, that's money. By investing money into a business, you then get to reap the rewards of your investment, if it's a successful investment. And that's pretty similar to what data subjects do with their data. They give the basic resources that drive the technology that they then benefit from using. Like how people filling out reCAPTCHAs got to use Google services for free. But there's a big difference between shareholders and data subjects, at least right now. Shareholders know how much money they invested and are aware of what is being done with that money. And even in a more general sense, shareholders know that they're shareholders. But some data subjects aren't even aware they're data subjects.
3: The bottom line is informed consent. But the problem is informed consent assumes that the data is mine, and then I transfer the exclusive right to use that da- uh, data to other company. But it's not that clear issue.
0: This kind of gray area has come up before, by the way, in a very different kind of business model.
3: In 19th centuries, before the introduction of automobiles, you know, most people use the horse wagon. And uh, horses create manure all the way down, all the roads. You know. No one thought that that would be a important economic resource, but some people thought that maybe. No one, no one cares about that. No one claims ownership.
0: Yeah, you can see where this is going. Some very brave man named William A. Lockwood stepped into the street, found 18 piles of horse droppings just kind of sitting there, and saw an opportunity to make some fertilizer on the cheap. The problem was that this guy named Thomas Haslam had ordered two of his servants to make those piles with the intention of, I don't know, picking them up later, I guess? And when he arrives the next day to find the piles of manure gone, he says, Hey, wait a second. That's my horse's droppings. You can't just use my horse's droppings that I left in the street for profit. So I want the $6 that the fertilizer you made is worth. Then Lockwood, the manure entrepreneur, said, Well, no, because I waited 24 hours for the original owner to claim it. I asked a few public officials if they knew who made those piles and if they wanted them. And this constable was basically like, ew, no. So I found your weird manure piles and I gathered them up and then did the labor of making the fertilizer. And the court said, I mean, yeah, that's valid. The case Haslam v. Lockwood is hilarious and fascinating and would take an entire episode to unpack. But the point here is this. These questions are complicated, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't tackle them. I should note here that Haslam v. Lockwood is an interesting analog, but it's not a perfect point of comparison. Horse droppings are, well, excrement. And the fertilizer that Lockwood made didn't impact Haslam's ability to get a job or secure a loan. So our data is a little different from that.
3: If our society is similar to that age, meaning that you know no one cares about data, then the courts would side with companies who use data. But once we as individuals start claiming that I have interest in my data, claim that I have interest, this, I have some property interest in my data, then the landscape will probably change. So it's up to us actually.
0: Despite how unapproachable topics such as AI and machine learning can seem for those who do not specialize in these areas, it's crucial to remember that everyone plays an important role in the future of how technology gets rolled out and implemented. By ensuring that individuals have rights relating to their own data, policymakers can set the stage for people to have some control over their data.
3: So for instance, shareholders uh, are granted uh, several rights. One is uh, information right, meaning that once they invest their money into a company, the company has duty to explain how the company has used the investment for uh, some period of time and how to uh, uh, realize that duty uh, in typical societies is using annual shareholders meeting during which shareholders are informed about how their money have been used. If data subjects have a similar right, information right, then they have a right to know about how companies have used their data to run their companies. And so we can imagine something like a annual data subjects meeting.
0: It might be an added burden on the companies innovating with AI and machine learning, but creating such rights would also ensure a higher standard of protection for the individuals. And by articulating that data subjects are, in fact, investors, we'd know how to enact legislation to better protect them.
3: It it is a philosophical and legal question. What is really legitimate status of data subjects? Are they... Simply consumers, then consumer protection perspective is the best. So public policy, policymakers can think about the how to protect them using consumer protectionism. If they are, if data subjects are laborers, then labor protection law is the best way to go. If investor is the right, legitimate status, then we have to think about how to use SEC.
0: If we had such rights, we could fight for programs to help deal with some of the problematic areas of AI such as the kinds of harmful biases that can emerge in the sorts of algorithms that we discussed last week. But that's going to take some education, both on our part and on the part of our policymakers.
4: Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users
5: don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. I see.
4: That's great.
0: Stay with us. In a 2015 article in The Guardian titled, What Does the Panopticon Mean in the Age of Digital Surveillance?, Thomas McMullen said of the sale of our privacy,
1: In the private space of my personal browsing, I do not feel exposed. I do not feel that my body of data is under surveillance because I do not know where that body begins or ends.
0: Here, he was referring to how we do or do not police our own online behavior under the assumption that we are all being constantly watched. But there's something to be said of the fact that often, We don't know where that body of data begins or ends, particularly when it comes to data capitalism. And if we did, maybe we'd be able to take a more proactive role in those decisions. Because while Professor Kim's approach to understanding our legal role as data subjects could inform how we may or may not be protected by certain governing bodies, we can't just be passive in assuming that that protection is absolutely coming. And by the way, we probably can't wait around for policymakers to just learn these things on their own. In April 2018, Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg appeared before Congress to discuss data privacy and the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And it became pretty clear that a lot of really prominent and powerful policymakers didn't really understand how Facebook and other companies that collect, monetize, and utilize your data actually work.
4: Well, if so, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service?
5: Senator, we run ads. I see. That's
0: great. Remember when Professor Kim said that every time we use a site like Facebook, we're making a transaction? Essentially, instead of paying Facebook money to log on, share articles, talk to our friends, check up on our old high school rivals, we're giving them our data, which they in turn use to push us relevant ads that generate money for the site. Which is why sometimes you'll go look at a pair of sneakers on one website and then proceed to have those sneakers chase you around the entire Internet. And this is a pretty consistent model, but it's also a pretty new model. And it makes sense once you hear it, but intuitively, we're not always aware that that transaction is taking place. The Zuckerberg hearings were 10 hours long in total, and at times, really frustrating. But perhaps the most telling was this moment between Zuckerberg and Louisiana Senator John Kennedy.
4: As a Facebook user, are you you willing to give me more control over my data?
5: Senator... As someone who uses Facebook, I believe that you should have complete control over your data.
4: Okay. Are, are you willing to uh, go back and, and, and work on, on giving me a greater right to erase my data?
5: Senator, you can already delete any of the data that's there or are, are delete all of it. Are you willing to expand
4: that, work on expanding that? Uh,
5: Senator, I think we already do what you're referring to, but certainly we're always working on trying to make these controls easier.
4: Are you willing to expand my right to know who you're sharing my data
5: with? Senator, we already give you a list of apps that, that you're using, and you signed into those yourself and provided affirmative consent. Right. As on I've said user, before, we that, don't share any that, data on with- On that
4: user agreement. Uh, are, are you willing to uh, expand my right to prohibit you from sharing my data?
5: Senator, again, I believe that you already have that control. So, I mean, I think people have that that full control in the system already today. Uh, If we're not communicating this clearly, then that's a big thing that we should work on. Because I think the principles that you're articulating are the ones that we believe in and try to codify in the product that we build.
4: are, Are you willing to give me the right to take my data on Facebook and move it to
5: another social media platform? Senator, you can already do that. We have a download your information tool where you can go get a file of all the content there and then do whatever you want with it.
4: And then I assume you're willing to give me the right to say, I'm gonna go on your platform and you're going to be able to tell a lot
5: about me as a result, but I don't want you to share it with anybody. Yes, Senator. And I believe you already have that ability today
0: there's a massive breakdown in communication between the people set to draw up legislation on platforms like Facebook and the people who design and run those platforms. But let me ask you something. Did you know that you could go delete your data from Facebook? And did you know that actually, Facebook doesn't sell your data? It acts as the broker between you and the companies that ultimately advertise to you by selling access to your newsfeed. A company can't say, Hey
1: Facebook, can you give me all of Lauren Prastine's data so that I can figure out how to sell stuff to her? Please and thank you. But it can say, Hey Facebook, can you give me access to someone who might be willing to buy these sneakers? Please and thank you.
0: And Facebook would say,
1: Why yes, I can't tell you who she is, but I can keep reminding her that these sneakers exist until she eventually capitulates and buys them.
0: Which is something you can opt out of or manage. If you go to your preferences page on Facebook, you can decide what kinds of ads you want targeted to you, what kind of data Facebook can access for those ads, and what materials you might find upsetting to look at. Which, by the way, wasn't something I knew either until I started researching for this episode. But it's also worth noting that on December 18th, 2018, just eight months after the Zuckerberg hearings, Gabriel J. X. Dance, Michael LaForgia, and Nicolas Confessor Of the New York Times broke the story that Facebook let major companies like Microsoft, Netflix, Spotify, Amazon, and Yahoo access users' names, contact information, private messages, and posts, despite claiming that it had stopped this kind of sharing years ago. The Times also noted that some of these companies even had the ability to read, write, and delete users' private messages. Even the New York Times itself was named as a company that retained access to users' friend lists until 2017, despite the fact that it had discontinued the article-sharing application that was using those friend lists in 2011. And all of this is pretty meaningful, given this exchange in the Zuckerberg hearings.
4: Let me ask you one final question in my 12 seconds. Could somebody call you up and say, i want to see john kennedy's file absolutely not could you if not not could you not would you do it could you do it Uh, in in theory do you have the right to put my data a name on my data and share it with somebody
5: i do not believe we have the right to do that
4: do you have the ability
5: senator the data is in the system so you have the ability Technically, I think someone could do that, but that would be a massive breach. So we would never do that. It would be a breach.
0: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In response to the New York Times expose, Facebook's director of privacy and public policy, Steve Scatterfield, said none of the partnerships violated users' privacy or its 2011 agreement with the Federal Trade Commission, wherein Facebook agreed not to share users' data without their explicit permission. Why? Essentially, because the 150 companies that had access to the user's data, even if those users had disabled all data sharing options, that's right, 150. And yes, you heard me. Even if users were like, please share absolutely none of my data, those companies were acting as extensions of Facebook itself, which, ah. So while Facebook may not have literally sold your data, They did make deals that let some of the most powerful companies in the world take a little peek at it, which was not something that I considered as within the realm of possibility when I agreed to make a data transaction with Facebook. And that's just Facebook.
6: I think in today's world, we need to be talking about basic data and algorithm literacy, which should be in schools and people should have a basic understanding of when I do things on an app or on a website, what kinds of data might be tracked? What are the kinds of things that companies can do with the data? How do I find out how data are being used?
0: Stay with us. Have you ever been walking around and suddenly got a notification that a completely innocuous app, like, I don't know, a game app that you play to make your commute go faster, has been tracking your location? And your phone goes, Hey, do you want this app to continue tracking your location? And you're like, wait, what do you mean continue? By the way, the reason why a lot of these apps ask to track your location is to be able to target more relevant ads to you. But even though I technically consented to that and then had the ability to tell the app, hey, stop it, no, I don't want you to track my location, I didn't really know that. So there's a lot of confusion. But there is some legislation in the works for how to most effectively regulate this, from requiring users to opt into sharing data rather than just sharing it by default, to requiring tech companies to more overtly disclose which advertisers they're working with. One piece of legislation currently in the works is the Dashboard Act. A bipartisan effort that would require large-scale digital service providers like YouTube and Amazon to give regular updates to their users on what personal data is being collected, what the economic value of that data is, and how third parties are using that data. By the way, Dashboard stands for Designing Accounting Safeguards to help broaden oversight and regulations on data. Yeah, I am also loving the acronyms in this episode. On a state level, California passed the California Consumer Privacy Act in late September 2019. This law is set to come into effect on January 1, 2020, and it will give the state increased power in demanding disclosure and, in certain circumstances, pursuing legal action against businesses. These laws will apply to companies earning over $25 million annually, holding personal information on over 50,000 people, or earning half their revenue from selling others' data. In addition to creating frameworks that define and defend the rights of data subjects, policymakers can also focus on initiatives to educate data subjects on their role in the development of these technologies. Because, like Professor Kim said, a big difference between shareholders and data subjects is informed consent. We asked Professor Hosanagar, our guest from our previous episode, what that kind of informed consent might look like.
6: Yeah, I would say that, first of all, where we are today is that most of us use technology very passively, and uh, you know, as I mentioned, decisions are being made for us or about us when we have no clue nor the interest in digging in deeper and understanding what's actually happening behind the scenes. and And I think that needs to change. Um, in terms of you know to what extent are companies providing the information or users digging in and trying to learn more? Uh, Not a whole lot is happening in that regard. So we are mostly in the dark. Uh, We do need to know certain things. And again, it doesn't mean that we need to know the uh, nitty gritties of how these algorithms work and, uh, you know, all the engineering details.
0: While it may not be realistic to think that every person on Earth will be able to read and write code, it is possible to add a basic element of digital literacy to educational systems, This is something that the American education system has tried to do whenever we encounter a new technology that's going to impact our workforce and our way of life. Growing up in the American public school system, I remember learning skills like using Wikipedia responsibly and effectively navigating a search engine like Google. So what's to stop us from incorporating algorithmic literacy into curricula?
6: You know, we used to talk about digital literacy 10, 15 years back and basic computer literacy and knowledge of the internet. I think in today's world, we need to be talking about uh, basic data and algorithm literacy, which should be in schools and people should have a basic understanding of, you know, when I do things on an app or on a website, what kinds of data might be tracked? What What are the kinds of things that companies can do with the data? How do I find out how data are being used?
0: You also may have noticed that a lot of the policy recommendations that have come up on this podcast have some educational component. And this isn't a huge coincidence. Education is a big theme here. As this season progresses, we're going to be digging into how education has changed and is going to continue to change in response to these technologies, both in terms of the infiltration of tech into the classroom and in terms of preparing individuals for the way these technologies will impact their lives and their places of work. This brings us back to one of our central points this season, that you play a very crucial role in shaping an equitable digital future, not just in providing the data, but in advocating for how that data gets used. Before we end, it's worth mentioning that a few weeks ago, Mark Zuckerberg returned to Capitol Hill to talk to the House's Financial Services Committee about the Libra cryptocurrency system. Some of the issues that we've been discussing today and that Zuckerberg discussed in his 2018 hearings came up again. So we thought it would be important to watch and review the five-hour hearing before we released this episode as written. And something that we noticed was that this time... Congress was pretty well informed on a lot of the nuances of Facebook's data monetization model, the algorithms Facebook uses, and even data subject protections, like this exchange with New York representative
7: Nydia Velazquez. Mr. Zuckerberg, Calibra has pledged it will not share account information or financial data with Facebook or any third party without customer consent. However, Facebook has had a history of problems safeguarding users' data. In July, Facebook was forced to pay a $5 billion fine to the FTC, by far the largest penalty ever imposed to a company for violating consumers' privacy rights as part of a settlement related to the 2018 Cambridge analytical scandal. So, let me start off by asking you a very simple question. Why should we believe what you and Calibra are saying about protecting customer privacy and financial data?
5: Well, Congresswoman, uh, I think that this is an important question for us on all of the new services that we build. Um, We certainly have work to do to, to build trust. I think that the settlement and order that we entered into with the FTC Uh, will help us set a new standard for our industry in terms of the rigor for the privacy program that we're building. We're now basically building out uh, a privacy program for people's data that is is parallel to what the Sarbanes-Oxley requirements would be for a public company on people's financial data.
0: So real quick, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act is a federal law that protects the investors in a public company from fraudulent financial reporting. It was passed in 2002 as a result of the financial scandals of the early aughts, like the Enron scandal of 2001 and the Tyco scandal of 2002. The hearing has also raised a really interesting issue when it came to data subject rights, shadow profiles. Here's Iowa Representative Cynthia Axney.
8: So do you collect data on people who don't even have an account with Facebook? Uh, Congresswoman,
5: there are a number of cases where a website or app might send us signals from things that they're seeing, and we might match that to someone who's on our services, Or, but someone might also send us information about someone who's not on our services, in which case we likely wouldn't use
8: that. So you collect data on people who don't even have an account, correct? Congressman, I'm not sure that's what I just said. If you're, but if you're loading up somebody's contacts and you're able to access that information, that's information about somebody who might not have a Facebook account. Is that correct?
5: Uh, Congresswoman, if if you're referring to a person uploading their own contact list and saying that the information on their contact list might include people who are not on Facebook, then sure, yes, in that case... So
8: so Facebook then has a profile of virtually every American, and your business model is to sell ads based on harvesting as much data as possible from as many people as possible. So you said last year that you believed it was a reasonable principle that consumers should be able to easily place limits on the personal data that companies collect and retain. I know Facebook users have a setting to opt out of data collection and that they can download their information. But I want to remind you of what you said in your testimony. Facebook is about putting power in people's hands. If one of my constituents doesn't have a Facebook account, how are they supposed to place limits on what information your company has about them when they collect information about them but they don't have the opportunity to opt out because they're not in Facebook?
5: Congresswoman, respectfully, I think you, I don't agree with the characterization saying that if someone uploads their contacts...
8: That's that's just one example. I know that there's multiple ways that you're able to collect data for individuals. So I'm asking you for those folks who don't have a Facebook account, what are you doing to help them place limits on the information that your company has about them?
5: Uh, Congresswoman, my understanding is not that we build profiles for people who are not on our service. Um, There may be signals that apps and and other things send to us, uh, that might include people who, who aren't on our in our community, uh, but I, I don't think we include those in any kind of and, understanding of, of who a person is if the person isn't on our services. So
8: I appreciate that. What actions do you know specifically are being taken or are you willing to take to ensure that people who don't have a Facebook account have that power to limit the data that your company is collecting? Uh, Congresswoman,
5: what I'm trying to... Communicate is that I, I, I believe that that's the, the case uh, or, or today. Um, I can get
8: back to you on, on all of the different things that we do in terms of controls. That services that that would be great, because we absolutely need some specifics around that to make sure that people can protect their data privacy. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, to conclude, Facebook is now tracking people's behavior in numerous ways, whether they're using it or not. It's been used to undermine our elections. And of course, I know you're aware Facebook isn't the most trusted name. So I'm asking you to think about what needs to be fixed before you bring a currency to market. Thank you.
0: This isn't the first time Mark Zuckerberg has been asked about shadow profiles by Congress. They came up in the 2018 hearings as well, where he denied having any knowledge of the existence of these profiles. However, in 2018, the journalist Kashmir Hill of Gizmodo found that Facebook's ad targeting algorithms were indeed using the contact information of individuals that didn't necessarily have Facebook accounts, which they obtained via users who had consented to allow Facebook to access their contact information, which might be the next frontier in the battle for data subject rights and informed consent. Which is all to say that today, you have clearly defined rights as a consumer, and you have clear protections to ensure that the products you buy aren't going to hurt you. When you go to school, you have rights and protections as a student. When you walk into a doctor's office, you have rights and protections as a patient. And if you buy shares in a company, you have rights and protections as a shareholder. Thanks, Sarbanes-Oxley. So, why not as a data subject? We hope that today's examples of exploring how you have contributed to the development of some of the most pervasive technologies in use today have left you feeling more encouraged about your seat at the table when it comes to tech development. So what does demanding your seat at the table look like?
1: That's a great question, Lauren, and it's something that's still being determined. From Professor Kim's work in defining what role data subjects have and what rights and protections that entitles them, to Professor Hassaniger's work in advocating for adequate educational reform for data subjects, there's a ton that can be happening on the policy side that can impact your place in the implementation of these technologies. There are various national organizations to better understand the impacts of AI and to help you as someone whose data is being used for these systems to better understand how these algorithms impact you. Academically linked efforts such as AI Now Institute out of NYU, or Stanford's Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence, and here at Carnegie Mellon, the Block Center for Tech and Society, are all working to increase the amount of attention researchers are paying to these exact questions. Nonprofits such as the Center for Humane Technology are helping people understand how technology overall is affecting our well-being, while more localized efforts such as the Montreal AI Ethics Institute and Pittsburgh AI are creating new ways for individuals to learn more about your role in AI and to advocate for your rights and to engage in the ongoing conversation surrounding data rights as a whole. And so where do we go from here, Lauren?
0: We're going to take the next episode to explore how becoming more active participants in this landscape could help shape this landscape for the better, as well as some of the obstacles to facilitating communication between the technologists that develop algorithms, the policymakers that implement them, and the communities that these algorithms affect. Because the fact is that algorithms are becoming more and more present in our lives, and affecting continuously more important decisions. Ultimately, if we have better insight into these decision-making processes, we can help improve those processes and use them to help improve our way of life, rather than diminish it. Next week, we'll talk to Jason Hong, a professor in Carnegie Mellon University's Human-Computer Interaction Institute, who has conceived of a rather clever way for the people affected by algorithms to help hold them accountable.
5: It turns out that several hundreds of companies already have these bug bounties, and it's a great way of trying to align the incentives of these security researchers. So what we're trying to do with bias bounty is can we try to incentivize lots of uh, laypeople to try to find potential bugs inside of these machine learning algorithms.
0: I'm Lauren Prastine, and this was Consequential. We'll see you next week. This episode of Consequential was written by Lauren Prastine, with editorial support from Eugene Leventhal. It was edited by Eugene and our intern, Ivan Plasicich. Consequential is produced by Eugene, Lauren, Srianj Mehta, and John Nelson. This episode uses clips of John Mulaney's comedy special Kid Gorgeous, the Wikipedia article Thoughts on Wikipedia Editing and Digital Labor, Alex Hutchinson's reporting on Recapture for the Walrus, an excerpt of Thomas McMullen's article What Does the Panopticon Mean in the Age of Digital Surveillance? which was published in The Guardian in 2015, excerpts of Mark Zuckerberg's 2018 and 2019 hearings before Congress, an excerpt from Gabriel J. X. Dance, Michael LaForgia, and Nicholas Confessore's article as Facebook raised a privacy wall, it carved an opening for tech giants and Kashmir Hills reporting for Gizmodo on Facebook's shadow profiles.